We come today to the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. Find your scripture, copy of the Bible. Turn to Jeremiah 32. We're going to read just a small portion of it. It's a very lengthy passage, but I'll read just a small portion of it. But then in the latter part of the sermon, uh, we'll refer back to it. So keep your scripture open. Don't lose your place. You're going to need it as we go along. Uh, We're going to read uh, chapter 32 and talk about 32. It falls right in the middle of what uh, Bible scholars call the books of comfort or the book of consolation. Jeremiah has uh, given prophecy after prophecy after prophecy about the judgment that is to uh, come down upon wicked Judah because of their idolatry and their unbelief and their sin. And he's prophesied doom and judgment time and time and time again. But we come to this point in uh, the prophecies of Jeremiah and he's going to bring them comfort. Uh, God is going to bring salvation out of this judgment. Something similar occurs in the Isaiah 40 when uh, Isaiah 2 prophesied to the wicked nation of Judah and prophesied gloom and, and judgment upon them. And in chapter 40, Isaiah kind of twists and, and he pivots. And, and the start of that uh, chapter is comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And, and Handel in his great uh, oratorio, the Messiah picks up on that thought. And that's the opening uh, line of the Messiah. Comfort my people. Comfort them. The Messiah is coming. Yes, judgment is coming initially, but comfort is coming. The Messiah is coming. There's, there's hope coming. And so we're in that kind of situation in Jeremiah 32. It's the book of comfort. By way of timeline, this happens in the uh, ending days of 588 B.C., the early days of 587 B.C. What that means for us is the fall of the city of Jerusalem is just days or weeks away. Uh, Zedekiah is the king of Judah. He's uh, there because of Nebuchadnezzar who placed him on the throne. Uh, Jerusalem is a vassal state sort of thing. And uh, Zedekiah followed faithfully what uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted for a little while. And then he got a burr under his saddle and decided he was going to revolt. And so he made this alliance with Egypt. And uh, so Egypt said, well, we will protect you and we'll will revolt against Babylon with you. And so uh, that aroused the final fury of Babylon and Babylon came to uh, take over the siege of the city, take over Jerusalem. And so they're under tremendous pressure by the Babylonians who are just days away from taking over the city. Um, Most likely... For this story to have taken place, there was this temporary halt in the siege. So Babylon comes, they're they're right at the doorway of Jerusalem. But 
uh, Egypt starts coming up from the south to help Jerusalem. And so temporarily, Babylon goes and deals with uh, Egypt. It takes them about five minutes, takes them longer than it to get there than it did to take care of Egypt. And they take care of that problem and they come right back to Jerusalem. And during this time, during that little uh, time frame of uh, a break in the siege, we see our story come uh, to come into play. Uh, Hanamel is going to come into the city during that time. Uh, Remember, the city is going to fall in a matter of weeks or days. Uh, During this time, during the siege, Jeremiah is placed under house arrest as a traitor to his country by Zedekiah. Uh, Jeremiah has constantly told the people, you know what, Babylon's coming, they're coming, they're coming, you better get ready. And what you need to do and what God has told you to do is just surrender to them. And if you'll just surrender to them and go into exile, all will be well for you. And so they, the people of Jerusalem and Zedekiah in particular considered Jeremiah a traitor. And so he placed him under house arrest probably more than anything, just to shut him up and get him away from the people. He put him into a house arrest sort of a thing. Visitors could come and go freely. There was kind of an audience uh, of the court. Uh, You'll see that in a little bit. Let's talk just a minute about Hanamel. Who in the world is Hanamel? I kind of mentioned him in a, a moment ago. Hanamel is Jeremiah's cousin. Hanamel's a, a shyster. He's not much count. Uh, Hanamel wants to sell this piece of property to Jeremiah. And remember, we're in the middle of a siege. Things are not looking very good, and Hanamel wants to sell property. He wants some money. He wants some quick cash. That he wants to sell it at all shows us something of Hanamel's character, and particularly so in these kinds of situations. Hanamel's just a, a scoundrel. He's uh, from Anathoth. He's from Jeremiah's hometown. He wants to sell this field. He really wants to pawn it off on Jeremiah. Um, He demands that Jeremiah buy it as the kinsman redeemer of that land because they keep things in the family. Now, remember, Jeremiah's family's written him off as a quack. They don't want anything to do with him. They even tried to kill him. Uh, They're Levites. So they live in a Levitical town. when, when the tribes were given their portions of land in the promised land, the Levites didn't get a portion of land. The Levites were given uh, little cities that they could live in. They didn't own the property. They didn't own the land. That Hanamel has a field means that somehow or other, through an arranged marriage or something, a field came to be owned by this people. And this field is not much of a field. It's probably more just an enclosure where you might keep a cow or a couple of sheep or something like that. But he wants to come to Jeremiah and get rid of this thing with Jeremiah. That he comes to Jeremiah at all shows that he is totally desperate. Totally desperate. Jeremiah is the, likely his last resort. The rest of the family probably told him to take a hike. This field is going to serve as another concrete, practical example of Jeremiah's message. Now remember, 
Jeremiah had bought an expensive loincloth at one time. He's bought a pottery urn. He's worn a yoke around his neck. Uh, he's going to use this example of land. Next week, he's going to use a group of people. God always uses these illustrations for Jeremiah's uh, prophecies and for Jeremiah's teaching. The big idea today is very, very simple. Even through judgment, even through calamity, no matter what the circumstances, we serve a God of hope. A God of hope. Take your scripture, read with me, starting in verse 6 of chapter 32. Jeremiah 6, excuse me, 32, 6. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field, that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance to the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field, that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions uh, and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Maseiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. I charged Baruch in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel that it may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to be in it. I pray, Father, that you will speak to us. We pray that you would plow open the, uh, the field of our heart, that may, we may receive your word, and that it may bear much fruit in our lives. And this we ask in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Imagine with me a couple of disastrous scenes to kind of get an idea as we wrap our minds around this scene. Can you imagine standing in 9-11, looking at the Twin Towers with the planes having just gone into it, smoke going everywhere, flames everywhere, and suddenly a realtor appears with a deed to the penthouse suite. Here, you need to sign this deed. This would be a good purchase for you. I think they'll have the fire out in no time. They're having a fire sale anyway. This is going to be good for you. Here, sign it. Or think about something else, another natural or another disaster that we are familiar with, the Titanic. Imagine you're standing in New York, you hear of the, the uh, Titanic and the problems that it's having, and suddenly there's a, a ticket agent at your elbow. Hey, you know what? The Titanic, it's going back to London in a few days. Uh, they're having a little problem out in the sea, but I think they'll have that 
back to the dock in no time. Here, buy a ticket. It's 100 bucks. Give me your money now. That's the same kind of ludicrous idea that is floating around in this story. Hanamel is wanting to sell a piece of property to Jeremiah in a time of utter disaster. What's happening around him is, is as the kind of disasters we talk about with the Titanic or the Twin Towers. Things are not going to turn out well. And Hanamel shows up and wants to sell this piece of property. To do anything in Jerusalem at this time but try and survive is just futile. But here he's presented with this uh, piece of property. And unlike the Twin Towers and unlike the Titanic, God was using this situation for his unique purposes in his redemptive plan. In the middle of this impending disaster, God interjected through these unusual circumstances hope. Hope. The land purchase is all about Hope. It's woven into the story in at least three ways. Through the land purchase itself, through the lament that follows, and through the Lord's promise and his answer to Jeremiah. Let's look at those three things. First, think about the land purchase with me. There's hope in the command of the land purchase. God not only made the command, but he fulfilled it right then for Jeremiah. God told Jeremiah in verse 7 that Hanamel would show up to sell the land. And sure enough, in verse 8, Hanamel showed up to sell the land. There's hope in that. God was doing far more than executing judgment. God is far, far more than one-dimensional. We tend to forget that. There's judgment being poured out on Jerusalem, but God was busy in the middle of it. He's got plans far, far, busy, or far, far bigger than what's going on in the city of Jerusalem. He's got plans bigger than what's going on in our little worlds too. No matter what situation you find yourself in today, God is in the middle of it. There's hope in it. He's got bigger plans. It's like he's telling Jeremiah, hey, I've told the people all about what's coming over and over and over and over again. They wouldn't listen. Now it's happening. Babylon is at their front door, but you know what? I got some other stuff going on. Let me tell you what else is going on. There is hope in every situation we face. Every situation we face because God is in it. He's always up to something. Always. There's also hope in the way the land was sold because it was sold by being redeemed through its redemption. Think about something with me. Anathoth was just outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. With it being that close, probably the Babylonians were using that land, that field right then to store their weaponry, to store their supplies. They probably had a garrison set on it. They had probably tents. They had their troops there. It was fully occupied by the Babylonians. It was firmly under their control. But Jeremiah's purchase redeemed it for its original purpose. He was the kinsman redeemer of that land. Like Boaz was the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. 
He redeemed the purpose of the land. His purchase redeemed it. It was given value again. It's a picture of God's redemption for us. We're tainted and enslaved by sin, but he purchases us back. He redeems us. He restores us to our purpose to worship and enjoy him. He gives us value. The command of Jeremiah to put the uh, deeds into clay jars shows us that he had hope for the future. Those deeds were going to be in those jars for a long time. There's hope for the future. Jeremiah would not get to use the land now. Jeremiah would never see that land. But Jeremiah knew that when the people returned to the land, his relatives would have that land. That land would be theirs. Jeremiah knew that it may not be today or tomorrow, but it would happen as God had promised. God told Jeremiah the judgment was coming, and it came. God told Jeremiah to buy the land for the future, and Jeremiah acted on his word, and he bought the land. And Jeremiah knew it was up to God to fulfill his purpose for the land. And Jeremiah trusted on it. It would happen a long time into the future. It reminds me of the verse in 2 Peter 3, where the apostle says, Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But it sure seems it, doesn't it? But the Lord is not slow, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The land was purchased as a testimony of hope. And the purchase reminds us that no matter what the circumstances we find ourselves in, God is not finished. He's not finished. We can hope in him. He's not through. There's hope in the land purchase. Do you ever have buyer's remorse? You bought something that seemed so great at the time, and then it wasn't. Like, I bought a motorhome. It looked a lot like that, just like that. It was great. Uh, we had taken, uh, we were young, we had taken our kids on lots of uh, camping adventures in a trailer. And, uh, because my business was doing so good because of uh, some unusual circumstances, um, we were doing whole housefuls of clothing that had been exposed to black mold. And so, I mean, they would just fill our shop with clothes and we'd do them insurance would pay us the, the work was plentiful the money was flowing it was great and we thought hey why not we'll buy a motorhome it was great it was fantastic we had some wonderful times it was the best thing we ever did till it wasn't <laughs> because it wasn't long and insurance got got hold of this black mold thing and they cut that thing off and suddenly we weren't 
having that business anymore. And what we owed on the motorhome was sucking every bit of our financial uh, cash away from us. And so we had to just park it on the side of the house. We couldn't take it anywhere. We couldn't afford to go anywhere. We couldn't gas the thing. It stood as a monument to our own stupidity. We had buyer's remorse. <laughs> well, you know what? Jeremiah looked back over his land purchase, and I think he had buyer's remorse. We, think, we tend to forget these Bible characters are flesh and blood men and women. They didn't know all of the, the story of Scripture. They only knew what was presented to them as it occurred. And, and uh, I think Jeremiah had buyer's remorse. He thought things like, did I hear right? I just shelled out a whole bunch of money. Am I just dumb? Was that really God? Was I delusional? What does God even mean by this? And so Jeremiah did what we should all do. He took it straight to God, and he offers a prayer of lament. I want us to look at that prayer of lament, and we're going we're gonna to Go through that in our scriptures. So have your Bible open. Look with me at verse 16 of Jeremiah 32. Verse 16 says, After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God. He starts with a sigh. Ugh. He starts with like, Oh my goodness, what have I done? What is going on here? What am I doing? In the late 90s, Don Moen took this little section of scripture and he made this little chorus. Oh, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens. And it was a snappy little tune and all that. He missed it. This is more Eeyore talking than, than a celebration. It's a, ah, uh, oh my goodness, what have I done? Lord, what, did I really hear you right? Ah. Uh, Ah, he does this two or three other times. He does it like in Jeremiah 1.6 when the Lord called him initially and he goes, Ah, oh, Lord, I'm too young. I can't do this. I can't be your prophet. And he does it in Jeremiah 4.10. He does it in Jeremiah 14.13. And he starts those little prayers of lament. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. It's interesting here. Some of the commentators that I read suggest that Jeremiah may have sighed because he thought the Lord uh, in his land purchase meant that the Lord was going to relent of this disaster. And so Jeremiah is going, you got to be kidding me. I have prophesied my whole life since I was a young guy. You remember? I was young. And you call me to prophesy and prophesy and prophesy, and I've given up my family. I've given, I have no friends. I have no anything. I, and I've done this faithfully for you. And I prophesied and prophesied and prophesied gloom and doom and disaster. And now you're going to, you're going to pull a Jonah and you're going to relent and I'm going to look like a fool. Are you kidding me? Oh, Lord God. Now, whether he really thought that or not, he didn't exactly express it. But he goes on to express what should be expressed, and that is he starts out praying attributes of God. And let's look at those real quickly. Let's look through, those, through this prayer. First, 
Jeremiah hoped in the power of God. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, it's you who've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. Verse 19, you're great in counsel. You're mighty indeed. Verse 20, you've shown signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Keep on reading. You brought your people out of Egypt. Uh, you brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and outstretched arm, with great terror. Lord, I don't understand, but you're a powerful God. I do not get this. Nothing, though, can stop you from doing what you want. He hoped in the power of God. Notice also, Jeremiah hoped in the goodness of God. Uh, I get this from verse 18. Pick up with me there, 18. You show steadfast love to thousands. Skip down to 22. You gave them this land, the people of Israel, which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey, See, God had been good to Abraham's offspring. He'd protected them. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them to a good land, and he let them take possession of it. And he let them live there for hundreds and hundreds of years. These hundreds of years are amazing because then now look at verse 23. Even though all these hundreds of years, verse 23, they entered, they took possession of the land, but they did not obey your voice or walk in your law. They did nothing of all that you commanded them to do. But Jeremiah, he knows God had let them stay in the land a long, long time. See, Jeremiah hoped in God's long suffering, his patience toward his people. Jeremiah expressed hope in God's power, his goodness, and his long-suffering. He expresses these three attributes of God in this lengthy page before he ever goes on and moves to the question that brought him to this prayer anyway. And then he doesn't even pose that as a question. God, you're powerful. God, you've done all these things. You've done this, 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 this. You have been faithful. You are powerful. You are almighty. And oh, by the way, you had me buy this piece of land and give this guy money. And I did it at your command. He didn't answer, ask it as a question. He just simply stated it. What a prayer. What a prayer. I just looked at it and began to count. He spends more than 260 English words praising and extolling God and meditating on his attributes. And that's about 10 times more words praising God than the 28 words he used expressing his dilemma. That's a good pattern. That's the opposite of most of our prayers. We spend you know, like two little words saying, God, you're good and all, but now here's what I want you to do. I want you to fix this, 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 this. But that's not how Jeremiah did it. He started off, God, you are this. God, you are this. You, this is who you are. This is what you're like. This is what you've done. This is how I know you. This is all about you. And you know what? I have these little needs. By the time he finishes praising God, his little needs 
have taken their proper significance because most of the things that we pray about need to be put into the perspective of God's greatness and his goodness. It puts things into better perspective. So let us remind ourselves this morning that our default reaction to every situation should be prayer. We should take it straight to the Father and it should be full of praise. Start with praise. Start with praise. There's hope in the, in the land purchase. There's hope in the lament. And we're going to see hope then in the Lord's reply. Jeremiah finished his prayer and he waited. Wouldn't you love to know how long he waited? Wouldn't you love to know, was it immediate? Did God speak just immediately to him? Did he wait for a week or so? Did he wait several days? Did it come to him in the middle of the night? I would love to have been a fly on the wall to know when God spoke. But God spoke, and he spoke in a dramatic way. Uh, pick up in verse uh, 26 to 35. And when you look at that section... God reiterates Jeremiah's word that nothing is too difficult for him. It's as if he's saying, indeed, it's not. It is not too difficult for me at all. And throughout this whole section, 26 to 35, God makes it clear to Jeremiah that in no way was he going to relent of his impending judgment. Uh, he's going to bring that judgment. Here's all the justification for it as if I owe anyone any explanation, but I have put up with these people. I have given them profit after profit a year after year. They've had chance after chance to repent. And now Jeremiah, I'm going to discipline them. Period. End of story. Now folks, there's hope in that. There's hope in the discipline. Think with me for a minute. Hope in the discipline. God loves these people. Loves them. He has a plan for them. And he loves them too much to leave them in their sin. That would be the most unloving thing that God, who calls himself their father, he calls himself their husband, he calls himself their deliverer, he calls himself their shepherd. That'd be the most unloving thing God could do is let them continue in their sin. It's the same today. If you're a believer in Christ today, if you're God's child, know something about discipline. He will not let you or me stay in deliberate, willful rebellion against him for very long, but he will bring us to discipline. Discipline. It may seem that we get by with it for a while, but if we're truly his, he will bring some corrective measures. Look at Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. I would be doing you great harm if I didn't warn you at this point. If you're messing around with some sin, you're pursuing that sin. You're refusing to give up that sin. If you're in rebellion against God in an unrepentant way today, and you're getting by with it for a long season, repent. Repent today. And if you refuse to repent, and you continue to get by with it, and you don't 
invoke God's divine discipline and his love upon your life, I would urge you by 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. God disciplines every son he loves. He loves us. Hope in the discipline. He loves you. He loves you too much to let yourself continue to harm yourself by sin. Hope in it. It's a sign of relationship with God. Be encouraged when you suffer for a season because he's working in you. He loves you. Now, the discipline of his people was not all God had to say. But starting in verse 36 to the end, God kind of pivots in his response. And he gives us some sweet promises, not only to the people of Judah, but to us as well. Now, think about this for a minute. When these prophets are forecasting the future and the future is being foretold, it's not necessarily all in order. Remember, they just do this kind of broad sweep uh, of the future. Sometimes uh, uh, the words they were applying meant for that day, sometimes a little further out, sometimes even into eternity. So when the prophets talk about um, the the king or the son whom I love. They weren't talking about the very next king. They're, they're referring to the Messiah. When they're talking about the king that he loves that would reign in this tremendous power in all of the world, would, they're talking about the future millennial reign of Christ. But it's all kind of interwoven together. So you kind of have to keep that uh, in your mind. We'll try and pick through them. So look at 36. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it's given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Verse 37, behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety. God promised he was going to use his power not only to discipline these people, to send them into exile, but he's going to bring them back. His people would return. There's hope in the return of his people. It was not too difficult for him. He could exile them. He could bring them back. The return nation of Israel was going to be part of God's redemptive plan. Jesus would come through these people in this land. It was not too difficult for God. It was not too difficult. It's not too hard. God's saying, I can... I can exile these people. I can save them too. It's not too hard for me. Remember, we talked just a minute, but we, we hope in God's power. Remember to hope in God's omnipotence. He can save. Look at verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. 39, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. And then in verse 40, I will make them or with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Now, if you know anything at all about the return to exiles, this really does not describe them. When they came back to the land, they were a hot mess. They were still a disaster. This, what we just read, discovers a little, or is describing a little further into the future. It's describing us. It's part of the new covenant. 
This describes new covenant people. Landon preached about the new covenant last week from Jeremiah. Uh, and this talk is talking about it again. Um, God is going to put the fear of himself into his people starting at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And um, his people may falter at, at various times, but they will stay true to God eternally because of the new covenant. We can hope today in the new covenant. It's forever. It's forever. When you become his child, it's forever. And his omnipotence, his power will cause it to happen. Then look at the end of verse 40. That I may not turn away from doing good to them. Down in verse 41. I will rejoice in doing good to them. I will plant them in this land of faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. And look at the end of 42. I will bring upon them all the good that I promised them. This describes the new creation. We will be planted in the new Jerusalem forever as our Father rejoices over his people eternally. Hope in the new creation. The rest of this chapter has uh, God telling us about the land purchases that will be made again. It's as if he's saying, hey, that's the purpose of your land purchase, Jeremiah. Because when my people see land being purchased again and again, and they're purchasing houses and fields and vineyards and things of that, it's going to confirm what I've just told you. It's a confirmation. What I said here will come to pass. I'll bring these people back. I'll pour out my salvation upon them through the new covenant that I'm going to make through my son, Jesus. We have to hope in his discipline. We have to hope in the return of his people. And we hope in the new covenant and in the new creation. Jeremiah's land purchase looked completely and utterly ludicrous and foolish. What a foolish thing to do at the time that he did it. But his land was an investment demonstrating God's promise for the restoration of his people in the promised land. And since God can be taken at his word, the purchase wasn't foolish at all. His people did return. They did again possess the land. They did again buy and sell property, just as the Lord said. Jeremiah's purchase was a worthy investment because God told him to do it. As we think of his land purchase, I want us to think about what's that mean for us in 2021? What about you? What about me? Have you made an investment in God's promises for the future? Have you taken him up on his promise of salvation to all who would repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ Jesus to save them? If not, trust Christ today. That's your initial investment in the kingdom of God. For those of us who are already his child, we need to ask ourselves some tough questions. Just how much of our life our time, our money, our resources, our talents. How much are we investing in the kingdom of God? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 19, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys 
and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will there be also. Maybe you and I need to look again at our investment portfolios today. Where are we investing? The lion's share of our investment in our time, our money, our jobs, our talents, our resources, they need to go to the kingdom of God to build up the kingdom of God. This story reminds all of us, no matter what situation we're in, that we need to invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in the kingdom of God. Pray with me.